I remember growing up in church, and uh, I was a choir director's son. That's kind of like a pastor's kid, like a missionary's kid, because you had to kind of toe the line from what, uh, you know, the, the church expected. And so you learn all these rules. You learn that in order to be accepted, you have to look a certain way, talk a certain way. In other words, I came to church, my parents, they... They, you know, out of love, they made me wear the, ni- the nice, nicest clothes that I had. So a little boy wearing a suit, it looked really funny, you know. Or um, as, and as I was growing up, my parents always have a look toward, do I look presentable? Um, do I speak presentable? Do I look like I have things put together? And so I got used to that. You, you learn how to play that game, and you learn how to fill into that role even other places, because it's a good thing to do. When you go to work, you want to be, you know, in many ways, look like you have things together and you know what you're doing. Um, one thing I didn't realize was that kind of hampered me in my relationships because in the back of my head, when I see somebody who looks completely other, in other words, they look like they are, even in high school, they, they look like they have tattoos, they've shaved their heads, their skin heads. My first reaction was, ooh. Number one, this person is not safe. Number two, I don't know if this person is a really good person. So I learned to judge people really quickly. And we all do this, especially New Yorkers. You have to do this on the fly. You're on a train, and you're doing threat assessments all the time. At the same time, something begins to change in you because you treat people as you think they are. And I came, I had this really kind of a uh, real eye-opening experience because even though I went to mission, you know, I kind of trained myself to see people a certain way, but when I had to go into the city, um, I didn't realize that I was doing this. I was really judging people and seeing people as, as, as their kind of their exterior represented. Well, a, uh, a friend who was kind of a mentor, he took me to the city to a place where we used to always go for good food and coffee sometimes, but that area in Seattle was really known to be kind of a hotbed for a lot of dissidents, for a lot of uh, people who are a little eclectic. The, the original LGBT community was, was up there. A lot of people, even a lot of homeless were there. A lot of people who were kind of raging in a lot of ways. You could see it. And he went there and he said, why don't you come with me? I'm just going to do some evangelism. I'm going to share Christ. I'm like, good luck. You know, that's, that's a crazy place to go try to share Christ. And this was a guy who was a first-generation Korean, so his English was kind of half-broken, Right? And, but he was a missionary. So I was like, okay. He kind of said, I want, I, want to, I want to do this. And so why don't you be with me? So I, I went with him. I followed him. We got out there, and I was really nervous. Can I tell you? Because it's one thing if you're going just to, like, eat your food and do your thing and just kind of walk past. It's another thing when you're trying to engage people. Um, this area is kind of flamboyant. In fact, um, my father, when we took, him to, <laughs> we took him to eat there once, and we didn't realize, but it was, it was actually during a parade where people were coming out, and you could see it. Um, my, my dad's jaw was like shocked. He was like, you know, he didn't realize that this was our city. And um, <laughs> a guy with uh, leather chaps with open buttocks was walking past him. And he was just like, he stopped and said, what's the matter for you? You know, like, why are you doing this? And, and so this, this is the background. I'm just telling you this is the background. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that's the way it should be. This is the background of where, where I'm coming from. So I know that area, and I'm there, and I'm supposed to evangelize. I'm like, what the, am I supposed to do? I'm really kind of nervous. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Good thing he was in the, I was just kind of like the backup. I'm just so on and so forth. I was supposed to observe. And as his name is DJ, as he was going, he was just walking up to people. And anybody, 
including people who, at the time, the, the rage was that you would um, not only have tattoos, you would not only have like kind of your hair, you would wear leather and spikes, and you would have piercings. Um, not only piercing your ear, your eyebrow, and the nose piercing were like of kind of like horns coming down. So it was kind of scary. I, I got to be honest, it's kind of scary. You know, these, I didn't realize until later on, but these are really nice people. They're just very gentle. And I'll explain to you kind of what I learned. Not everybody's like this, but there's a whole bunch that were like that. But my first response is, oh, my gosh, this person is not safe. You know, I can't imagine what they're thinking of me, right? Uh, and as we're, as we're talking, I was just paying attention. DJ was completely non-flinching. He would go to, up to anybody and start, start talking. And he brought up a bag of apples. And the way that he would introduce himself was, hey, you want an apple? And then they go like, oh, sure. And he would just start talking. And here's this guy who doesn't even have control of the language like I do, who was just absolutely comfortable. And because he was so comfortable with people, they were comfortable with him. And we got into some really in- interesting conversations, hearing the story of how some of these young kids, I didn't realize it, they were like 14, 15 years old. They ran away from home because of domestic violence, and they were being molested at home. And, and I had no idea their backstory. All I read was, this guy is scary. This, this girl, like, she looks like she's on something, right? Um, later on, as I was talking to GJ, we kind of figured out, oh, they do that on purpose. Because they realize the world is not safe. There are too many people who are going to judge them. And so they do that to protect themselves. Somebody looks at them and goes, oh, they know. I know where this person stands. But if you get into a conversation, they'll treat you like a human being. And you can actually treat them like a human being when you can get past that. And I, I, to this day, I, I remember that. Because going into that experience, I was so sure I could read somebody by how they looked. Oh, I thought they would be. The categories of where they should stand. But this guy was just so comfortable. I was like stiff, like, hi, my name is Martin. You know, I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. But he was just so comfortable to love them, to talk to them. And I learned something really important about what it means. Because I saw in him something that Jesus is completely alike. And when Jesus was on the earth, God in human form, He talked to anybody. He spent time with everybody from the highest echelons of elite to the worst of the worst people, to the nobodies. He just knew how to just, not just, he wasn't just so smooth and he wasn't a schmoozer. He was just so loving and so comfortable. So much so that all these people flocked not because he had this powerful message, because of who he was, how they felt when they were around him, and how he drew them and invited them into relationship. This is not something that I grew up with. I grew up, I grew up with a church, and Andy Stanley talks about it, where his church was a Jesus says church. You go and if Jesus says, then you kind of like Heil Hitler or like, you know, like Simon says, you just do what you're supposed to do. You act a certain way, you look a certain way, you believe a certain thing, you behave a certain way. And he didn't realize that that's not what relationship with Christ is about, just doing what Jesus says. It's about knowing him. It's about responding to him when he says, come, follow me. I saw a picture of that with my friend DJ that I'm still wanting and growing, hopefully, to, to embody and follow in his footsteps as well. But we are in a series called Follow. And this is, we're going to be going, this is the first of eight 
weeks that we are going to be walking through the material that's in the study by Andy Stanley. And um, today we're going through what um, Jesus says. And this is the first one. There's grace groups. And this is our, in our season of grace groups, we spend time kind of in these study groups, in these sharing groups. So we can really are, are safe enough to really grow in. If you haven't been connected with one, today's a start. And so there's men's groups and women's groups starting um, as well as uh, during the midweek. And so uh, we really encourage you to be a part of this. But the way grace groups work is I preach a message, or not just me, but Pastor Richard's going to be preaching the next one. And then the grace groups follow up so you get a chance to talk through, get a chance to interact, and let it go deep. We believe in deep truth in deep relationships brings transformation. And that's where we see that in our grace groups. This season, we're doing the material called Follow about well, who is this Jesus and what, are we, how, what does it look like? It looks like a relationship where no matter where we are, he's calling us to follow. This story that we had just heard, read for us, is the story of the calling of Matthew. Matthew is one of the 12 disciples. He is the author of this, you know, grand gospel, if you think about it. Uh, it wasn't the first one written, but it's put first because it, it really does take a, 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 make, a make a very, you know, a powerful approach to, to Jesus' teaching and who he is. But if you know the background of Matthew, you would have never expected for him to start off as a tax collector. I've got to unpack that a bit um, because tax collector for us these days doesn't come close to. It's very hard to imagine what kind of situation they were and how people have treated them. Um, just to, to give you a heads up of what a tax collector uh, is, and if you were part of the retreat, Pastor... Uh, Sam Choi, he walked through another story of another tax collector called Zacchaeus, and he gave us a little background, but not everybody's with the treat, so I'm going to give you, try to give you a little summary of, like, who was, what is this tax collector, and why, why do people treat, him, uh, treat them in a certain way? And so, uh, just to give you a heads up of what a tax collector did, and um, is they were, in many ways, there's a whole system, it's kind of like, Rome was really good at a lot of stuff, not just their military might, not just their logistics and their administration, but they were really good at making sure that they didn't have to work and they made everybody else work and they lived high off the hog, pretty much. So they, everywhere they conquered, they instituted this very vast system of taxes. They taxed everything, okay? Not just the property tax, not just income tax. They had income tax back then. Not just the kind of the regular stuff, they taxed, like, uh, not only the roads that you took, kind of like these days when you're trying to get from here to New Jersey. Holy cow. Like, those tolls are expensive, right? Um, they had those kinds of taxes. Uh, they had taxes on customs. Anytime you had a business, okay, they had sales tax. Can you imagine that? Every tax that we know, well, maybe not every, but almost all the taxes that we know, they had it. It's, it's kind of comforting to know that this has been around for a while. And New York is one of the most taxed cities. But it gives you an idea what they must have felt. Okay? It paid for the soldiers. It paid for all kinds of things. But for the poor, it was really tough. Because, for example, when Jesus finds Matthew, he's actually at a place where, at a booth, where people had to stop by. And he is kind of, at, at a thoroughfare, he's controlling all the people who are coming through, where he has the right, as this tax official legally, to stop you because he looks like you got some goods on you and say, open up your bag. And you have to open up your bag. And he can basically, you know, justify or not. A lot of times it was so corrupt, he could just take whatever he wanted. 
He had to give a certain amount of tax that goes up the chain to Rome, but he had license to do whatever he wanted. Now, can you imagine just walking down the street and somebody saying, oh, looks like you got something good there. Let me see, because I'm going to take some. And you couldn't do anything about it, because soldiers would be with him, and he would, they would take. And this was a, a regular aspect of life. Can you imagine living in that kind of injustice? Okay? And uh, what it must have looked like to actually think about people doing this to you. But what was worse was the Romans knew that if they had Romans doing this, the Romans would actually be under threat, under attack. So you know what they did? They got Jews who were morally suspect, who knew what they were going to get into, but they would make a lot of money. They got Jews to do this. So can you imagine if you were a Jewish person, okay, seeing this traitor, this turncoat, this parasite, okay, use the system to just rob your own people blind. They were considered the scum of the earth, okay? They hated tax collectors with a vengeance. They were the worst. They hated them as much, maybe even more than Romans, because it was like their own people doing this to them. Um, they were highly taxed. And then, on top of that, it was the tax collectors, you know, some of them were worse than others, but they went over their bounds to make money for themselves. That was the system. Matthew was one of them. We don't know how long he was doing this, but if you think about it, he is no uh, angel. And in fact, if you think about this, he actually, um, he was privy to a lot of injustice, okay? All day long. Not just doing this as a, as a you know, upright official, but on the take all day long. Long. It's like a mafia. You know, I try to think about what would be the most closest example of what a tax collector would be now these days. It's not an IRS agent, okay? Because IRS agents, they're kind of scary. Like, you'd never want to get audited, much, much less like somebody actually you know, on the take. But all the more so, no accountability. Uh, it's, it's, mafia is kind of close in some sense because they take from their own people in many ways. But um, Andy Stanley, who, who tries to give us an example of this, is somebody who preys on their own in a, in a really morally suspect way. He says it's like a, a drug addict who camps around the middle school to sell drugs to the middle school students and get them hooked, right? Those are the scum of the earth. I don't think, I don't think that comes close. So these tax collectors, they were hated. Matthew was one of these. Now, if you follow the story, uh, two weeks ago I preached on the first calling narrative where Jesus goes and he calls four nobodies, these fishermen. They aren't morally suspect. They are just nobodies. And the same kind of, you know, procedure. He goes and finds them where they are in their daily life and says, come follow me. And immediately, something about Jesus, they will have heard his message. They will know something about him. It was so compelling that they just left their nets. They left their father in order to follow Jesus. But this situation is a little different because if you follow along since that first calling series, Jesus is doing a lot of preaching and he's ministering to a lot of suspect people, lepers and prostitutes, people that most people would say, oh, those are undesirables. Those are, ugh. you don't want to be around them. You don't want to be associated with them. They are actually hearing this message of grace that God loves them. God has a plan to free them and that they're invited to become disciples and follow. But this one is incredibly scandalous because nobody would have expected that Jesus would actually have recruited a tax collector. Okay. 
in the very mode and the activity of doing what he was doing. It's like Jesus going to a pimp, right, and saying, come follow me. What? Right? That's kind of, ooh, that's kind of shady, it feels like. And he did this in public, okay? Just trying to give you a setup of like, wow, this is pretty bold of Jesus. You'll find out because it, it has ripple effects. People hear about it for, have different responses, amazing responses. But just for now, just think about this. Here comes Jesus, right in public. He outs Matthew and says, come follow me. And by some absolute miracle, we don't even realize how much of a miracle it is. As Jesus comes to him and says, come follow me, Matthew follows. Some scholars say, you know, if we were to stop for a moment, this is as big a miracle as like somebody whose like, hand is withered and all of a sudden can move. Somebody whose eyes are like gone, they were blind since birth and they can see. You know, somebody who can't walk can jump up. It's, it's that powerful a moment, okay? Imagine the, 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 the dirtiest, the most hated person all of a sudden being recruited, and the shock of that is not simply that Jesus would go there, but in fact that Matthew would say yes. Something about Jesus, who he is, and what he said was so compelling that Matthew, even in the middle, of, and you imagine the shame, you know? I mean, he, he, put up, he put up berries, I'm sure, but in the middle of what he was doing, Jesus just comes in and asks him to follow him, and he does. And everybody is watching. It is, for us, many times, we don't realize just how radical Jesus was. Just kind of like my friend DJ going up to these people. And as we were doing that, by the way, people were looking at us like, what are you doing? Okay, don't, don't talk to those people. Okay, you don't, you don't talk to those people. You look kind of nice. You know, what, what are you doing? Like, they were kind of wondering because that just doesn't happen. And multiply by a thousand. Jesus just didn't just invite him graciously to follow. He actually, you find out later on in, in this passage, he is found in, 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 um, in Matthew's house. And Matthew presumably has a nice house, okay, because he's been robbing people blind for quite a while now. And, and, and this, is, this is the crazy part. Jesus is the guest of honor. And he's not like, oh, he's not like sheepish about it. He's not like, he's actually so comfortable to be in Matthew's house. Matthew invites all of his friends. And all of his friends are not like the guy next street, the guy who mows his lawn. They're not like normal people because tax collectors don't have relationships with normal people. The only people that tax collectors have relationship with are other tax collectors, okay? It's kind of like um, what it was being said before, like um, in, the, in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, when they're talking about church discipline and Jesus says, if they don't follow these attempt, a constant attempts for reconciliation, and guess what? Treat them like pagans or tax collectors. So morally reprehensible, untouchable, you don't talk to them. So the, only the tax collectors, and it was kind of funny, tax collectors hung each with each other because they had nobody else. They were such social outcasts. But in this setting, for the first time, somebody who was not a tax collector dignified them, talked to them, shared about God. They were just loved. And this is the fun part. It, they're, they're reclining to eat because this is what you do at a special meal. This is not just kind of, oh, let's come over for dinner. You know, we're, we're having meatloaf. It's like we're throwing out all of the, of, of the, the best silverware and we're, we're having a feast. Okay? I do that sometimes. Like, imagine myself. What would it be like to eat this 
very special dinner because that's what they do. They would recline, right? I do that on my couch just sometimes and I eat grapes. I'm like, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Roman aristocrat, right? Uh, but that's what Jesus is doing, all right? It's this picture of, whoa. And if somebody caught a, a glimpse of Jesus, they'd be like, whoa, what is he doing? He's in the tax collector's house eating the grapes that were bought with the, with the suffering of the people around him. They would have been so livid. But something's happening in that house. It says many, even many tax collectors started to follow Jesus. Okay? This is, this is you know, you, you heard the story through, um, through Pastor Sam about Zacchaeus. And this, it wasn't just the, the time with Zacchaeus, but this is who Jesus was. Everywhere he went, he spent time with, he invited not only the upper echelon, not only the nobodies, but even the, the morally outcasted, the dirt. He was so comfortable with everyone. But there's a cost to this, even to Jesus, because uh, all of a sudden they start saying stuff like, you know, oh my gosh, he, he's, he's a glutton, he's a drunkard. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. What that saying is, that means it's guilt by association. Back then, you don't eat a meal with somebody unless they are kosher. If you eat a meal with somebody, and this is we found in the New Testament as well, with a pagan, somebody who's not a Christian, you have defiled yourself because you've associated yourselves with them. And this is not just a normal defiling. This is a tax collector's home. He was surrounded by tax collectors. He wasn't preaching to them. He was enjoying a meal with them. It's guilt by association. Can you imagine that? So when the Pharisees find out, they are up in arms. They are so, who is this guy? And they basically try to bust in, but they won't let, you know, obviously Matthew won't let the Pharisees in the home. And so this is, they, they basically say, I'm hearing your master is eating with tax collectors and sinners. Okay? That, that's, a, that's a one phrase. Tax collectors and sinners. Because okay? basically that's how they used to describe it. You could never say tax collectors or tax collectors and righteous because they don't match together. Tax collectors and all the other kinds of sinners that are represented most distinctly by tax collectors. He's eating with them. And they are just associating guilt like crazy. And so here's Jesus, and this is Jesus' response. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not healthy who need a doctor but the sick. It is not healthy who need a doctor but the sick. Makes sense, doesn't it? When somebody needs a doctor, they don't need a doctor because they're doing so well. You know, you're, you're feeling sick. Actually, you can tell. You know, my whole family's been out this whole week. You know, a virus. But you don't have to go to the doctor. But if something's really bad, you call the doctor to, to, or you go to the hospital. You go when you're needing help. If you look carefully, though, that word for healthy is actually a word that's used in the Old Testament uh, four times in the original Greek language translation. And all of them are in one book, the book of Isaiah. And all of them describe God ironically saying, oh, you people who think you are so strong, so mighty, so self-righteous, you don't need anybody. Watch out. You're in trouble. Interestingly enough, these guys would have known what him, when he used that triggered word. It's not the people who have everything put together, who have their circles of good friends, who are insulated, living in their bubble, who have good life and are not worried about and would never 
be associated or, or bear the stink or the guilt of anybody outside those circles. Not those people who need the doctor. It's the sick. Those who recognize they need something. They need God. They need help. And that's exactly not only why he came, but actually he's not only defending himself, he's actually saying, don't you realize by the way that they are reacting, these Pharisees, they are saying, I am not sick. I am healthy. And they are removing themselves from the zone of grace that Jesus is reaching out to. He adds a second kind of painful little jab just to, to, to stir their hearts. He says, but go and learn what this means. Now, imagine this. Here's Jesus, a carpenter, not educated, spending time with the losers and the, the most socially, morally untouchables of the earth. Okay? And then he has, a, he has this audacity to tell the PhDs of legal affairs, the, the religious elite, the most respected of all, he has, the, he has the audacity to say, go and learn. As if, you don't know nothing. You know, you know nothing, Jon Snow. You don't know nothing, right? Um, my, uh, my, my wife, a little story about this. My, my wife, you know, she's very learned. She, she's, she's a scientist. She knows what she's doing. Um, but at home, she's tired, and she doesn't want to explain everything. I'm an explainer. She, doesn't, she hates explaining. Maybe I'm a mansplainer. I don't know, but whatever it is. Um, and so at, when our oldest daughter, Ellie, was, she was talking, right? And if you're a parent, you're just dying for your child to start talking. And then they start asking questions nonstop for like, you know, days on end. And you're just dying for them to shut up, right? That was the, that was the period. Why is the sky blue? Why, 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 why is water taste like this? Why is this? Why is that? Why is this? Why is this? And um, my wife just can't take it. So she just would go to Ellie and say, go talk to daddy. I don't know. I don't know. Go talk to daddy. And here am I. I'm like trying to explain everything. And so at least, you know, she didn't get it. You know, I explained to her why the, the diffraction you know, and so on and so forth, why the sky is blue and so on and so forth. And, and she didn't quite get it, but I would explain it. I'm explaining, explaining it. And then every time she would ask mama, you know, mama would say, I don't know. Go ask daddy. Okay. And Ellie's trying to make sense of the world. And she's like, oh. And, you know, she's, she was going to Sunday school, but she was about ready to go to real school. And so, uh, and, you know, we said that when you go to real school, you learn. Right? And so she's thought to herself, hmm, mama, mama always says, I don't know. So one day, she asked mama this question, and mama says, I don't know what to talk to daddy. And then she, Ellie looked up at her and says, mama, you don't know so much. You need to go to learning school. <laughs> That's Jesus saying, you Pharisees, you think you got it down. You think you know God like the back of your hand. You think your life is good. You think all is good. But go and learn. You don't know so much. Go and learn. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is from the book of Hosea. He's quoting. Because in the time of Hosea, in the Old Testament, the temple was gone. All the physical expressions, the ceremonial expressions of this is what it means to be God's people. This is your right with God. You're having this life with God. You're good. It was shattered. And they're like, what do we do? And Hosea's like, don't you know, from the beginning, it wasn't about this outward religious expression. It was always about relationship. That word mercy describes covenant love, as has said. It's the word of God saying, this is who I am. I am so loving. I am so faithful. I am so kind. I am so loyal. I am so merciful. That's what I want. 
That's what it means to be like me and follow me. Not all this extra stuff. And he has to bring this up and says, go and learn. He says, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Okay? Isn't that interesting? He's not come to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. The very people who have screwed up their lives, who you would read at a glance and say, not only is that person not good, they're not safe, but God would have nothing to do with them. I can just imagine what they've done, what's on their rap sheet. That in fact, that's the very reason what he came to do. Not just to forgive them and say, okay, it's fine, but to call them into relationship. It is shocking. It is, it's not simply just even the prostitutes is one thing. But it's the tax collectors. It rocked the people's understanding of what it means to respond to God. Because the Pharisees were set up a whole system of doing life, doing church, where it's all based on segregation. Okay? It's all based on segregation. Where if you are a people of God, you distinguish by how you dress, by how you speak, what you do, and who you hang out with. That if you want to be a people of God, you have to look a certain way, you have to talk a certain way, you have to present your certain way, you have to believe certain things, you have to behave a certain way. You have to clean up your life in order to be accepted by God. And Jesus is throwing that completely out. He's saying, no. The system by which God operates is relationship, it's association. He comes to where Matthew is, in the midst of his, not only his livelihood, but the very place where he's been practicing injustice. And out of this incredible grace and mercy, because he knows Matthew's sick, and Matthew knows he's sick, he needs help. He says, come. I will not only ask you to follow me, I'll go to where you are. I'll associate with you. I'll be with you. I will step with you. I will walk with you every step of the way until you find yourself whole. That's what it means to actually be in relationship with Jesus. That's what it begins to mean, what it means to follow. And we're going to talk a lot about this follow language, but for today I just want to wrap up with a few things. Um, this is Andy Stanley's language, just to help us to understand what this story tells us about what it means to follow. Number one, being a sinner doesn't disqualify you from following Jesus when he says come, and he does say come. It's a prerequisite. I like that. Being a sinner doesn't disqualify you. Oh, you know, you know, in Catholic circles, you're not even allowed to take the, the you're, not, you're, not, you're not even allowed to take the, the wine. You can only take the bread because you just don't feel like you're qualified. You're not that great, okay? You're not a priest. You're not somebody. But actually, in this circumstance, if you're not a sinner, okay, guess what? You don't even qualify to follow, okay? Isn't that interesting? Um, and there's a quote here that, that, uh, that it makes a little sense here. It says, this is from Matthew Henry. I don't spend a lot of time reading this commentary, but this, this was a pretty good statement here. It says, the more sensible any sinners are to their sinfulness, in other words, the more aware, the more it makes sense to you that, oh my gosh, I'm a sinner. Okay, I'm messed up. I need help. I can't figure this out. I don't have this approach to God where I can figure out everything and I'm good. I'm not good. The more sensible any sinners are to their own sinfulness, the more welcome will Christ and his gospel be to them. 
you realize you're lost and you need help. You realize you're sick and you need a doctor. You realize you need God. Something opens up. And this is a little, this is a little diagnostic. Even somebody who's hurting and has pain or is living a life of injustice and a mess, maybe on the outside you look good, but on the inside you're a wreck. You're a hot mess. If you like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, guess what? You won't be welcome to Christ. But the second you're honest and say, oh, man, my family life's not good. My marriage is not good. My heart is not good. I need Christ. Okay? My soul is not good. You begin to welcome him. And his gospel makes so much, not just sense, but it begins to change you. On the flip side, it says, those who conceit themselves so, or they think themselves to be righteous. I'm good. I'm good. I don't need God. I don't need stuff. I can just do my own way. Interesting, it says, will sooner be sick of their Savior than sick of their sins. You know what this is saying? You can be in church and you say, I'm not a sinner, I'm not a sinner, I'm not a sinner, I don't have issues. Yeah, of course, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. After a while, you get sick of your Savior versus sick of your sins. So I think that explains a lot. It's so easy to become a Pharisee, even in the vision. We have that in our background. I've got to be honest. Okay? We've got generations of Pharisees that have, that have been plowing the way. And we need to really watch our hearts. But the second we say, wow, Christ, you're that gracious, you're, you're that comfortable, you're that safe, it allows us to say, come, I need some help. Okay? Um, let's go back here. So uh, being a sinner doesn't disqualify you from, from following Jesus. It is an absolute prerequisite. It's encouraging to know that. A second thing, being an unbeliever doesn't disqualify you. You don't have to have been baptized. You don't have to have somehow, you know, uh, believe everything. No, you can have a lot of reservations, a lot of questions like, I'm not so sure. I'm not a Christian. But you know what? None of Jesus' earliest followers believed. Look at the Gospels. Look at Mark. He's constantly saying, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? They're still wrestling with who this Jesus is. They're still trying to figure out. They're still trying to, Follow him and become like him. You can explore and be brought into a relationship with Jesus without the full expressions of, I am a Christian, I am full. You can be an unbeliever. I don't know if that changes you, your mind about, wait a minute, who, who gets to be in church? Who gets who get to minister to? Who gets to be talked to about Jesus? Yeah. You can start with a lot of questions. And Jesus will still say, come follow me. Come and see. Come and find out. Come explore. Come walk the where I walk. Come and watch and observe. And see what that does. And take steps. Number three, invitation to follow is an invitation not to absolute Jesus says obedience. This is Andy Stanley. But it's an invitation to relationship. Where as you're walking through the stories of Jesus, as you're talking to people, as you're living life, you realize Jesus actually... In the way that he's treating this tax collector, that's the same Jesus that's treating you. In the same way that he's speaking to them, he's speaking to us. And his spirit is the one that's prompting us and moving in us, but it's one to relationship. Fourthly, this is the great part. The following, if you really focus on following, it forces you or forces me to focus on where 
I am? What's my spiritual health? What's going on inside me and in my relationships? Who am I and where am I with God? It forces to think about where I am rather than where you are not. You're so focused on, God, how can I follow you? You're not spending time on like, ooh, what about that person? Ooh, tax collector. Yeah. You're not looking around to judge somebody. Oh, I'm in, I'm in better shape than that person. Yeah. Did you hear about what happened? Then? You're not gossiping. You're not like figuring out all the, all the junk and the dirt and the mess around you because your eyes are on, Jesus, I'm just looking at you and you're looking at me and we got places to go. It's a very different look. It's amazing how comfortable Jesus is in a room full of tax collectors. Yeah. How comfortable are you? And this is speaking to those who grew up in church or maybe are very, know what to do like me. We're trained, what to say, what to look like. How, to, how, to, how comfortable are you when you're around people like this? Are you comfortable or are you stiff? It's taken me so long to learn how to do but it starts with me being comfortable because Christ knows how to be comfortable. I've got to ask yourself, how comfortable are you? Okay, Not because you can talk and walk and do the same thing that other people do, but you can be someone who's following Christ. And they can hurt you. They can, they can, they, they can hurt you emotionally. They can reject you. But it doesn't matter because you're so at rest because you're following Christ. You're not worried about where they are and what they need to do you're so focused on you following Christ. I think the solution to this is how to grow comfortable is you start following. Before you know it, you're not so hung up on all the people's, other people's mess because your God is working in your own heart. You're following him. I, I do want to, you know, bring that point to us and ask, how comfortable are we? As a church, we've come a long way. It used to be if somebody didn't come in a suit, you'd see five people go, ooh, you know. Um, sometimes it takes like a year or so for people actually to kind of, oh, I can come in shorts, yeah. And nobody's going to judge me, you know. Oh, I can be myself. I can, I can, I don't have to be all prim and proper. I can share about my life. Uh, it, it's, takes, it's taking us a while. But can you imagine if somebody coming in who's got a background? How must they feel? And we want to be a church that actually follows Christ to the point where somebody knows that, wait a minute, why, why are people not looking at me funny? They know. Why aren't people treating me this way? Because Christ is here, and we're followers of Christ. If you're somebody who's been burned by church, because I have been, just people looking at you, saying certain things, you don't just match up, and you feel so much of reject, and you feel like it's coming from God, you need to know that has nothing to do with Jesus. That Jesus is the one inviting not just Matthew, but anyone and everyone into a relationship. He starts working right away, deep in your heart, one step at a time. We've got some steps to take, both as a church, but also just in following Christ. I'm just going to have you pray with me. I just want to have you remember and to reflect. Did you realize that Jesus is the most safe person in the world? He knows everything about you. He knows every little 
mark on your rap sheet. But when he looks at you, he's not condescending. He's not looking you up and down saying, "Mm." there is such warmth, grace, acceptance, and hope. No matter where you are, you might be in the middle of doing something so ugly, maybe nobody knows. And there's some sickness in your heart. You don't know how to deal with it. Jesus will come to you right there and say, come, follow me. You don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to have some external expression. Worthy. You don't have to clean your life up before. Just come. Follow me. You don't have to believe everything. Some of this stuff makes no sense to you. That's okay. He's inviting you to relationship. Maybe you didn't realize that. So when you see somebody who's maybe at your workplace or your neighbor, middle of the street, and your first thought is, oh. Maybe you realize today that you're not a safe person. Maybe that's part of our sickness, yours and mine, as a church. But we are sensible to our own sickness when we are aware of this. God, I'm turning into a Pharisee. I look at somebody and my first thought is not how much God loves this person, how broken they are. My first thought is, what a loser. This guy, I'm going to have nothing to do with. All these alarm bells should be going off in your heart and mind. It's not God. And if you don't know how to be comfortable to the place where you can talk to and love and engage and invite somebody, not only go to their house, but come them to come to your house. Engage in relationship and bid them, call them into a relationship with Christ. This is a place where we can say, Jesus, I need a, a doctor. Because I'm not good. I'm not all good. I need you to work in my heart too. Maybe you know somebody and you've been praying for them. And you've been stuck in these rules of you got to do this, you got to do this. And maybe they're stuck there too. Watch what Jesus does. He goes right to them. How might that change the way you talk and care for them? Take some time and wherever you are, wherever, whatever's been stirring your heart even through this message, would you respond to God? Maybe to repent and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm the sick one. Maybe to say, Jesus, really? You're asking me to follow? Even though I don't fully believe? Would you take a step today? Would you take a step today?